invite you to listen along as I read our passage this morning. And when we're done, I'll say that this is God's word or this is the word of the Lord. And join me to give thanks to God by saying thanks be to God. John 12, 36 to 43. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but I walk around in this day and age, and I kind of feel like the Apostle Paul walking around the city of Athens. Acts chapter 17, verse 6 says that when Paul entered this great ancient city, he saw a place that was filled with idols. A place where people worshipped anything and everything, but they ignored the one thing that really matters. I feel like that in our day and age. People love anything and everything. They love their sports and their politics. They love their fitness and their stuff. (laughs) They love their polite religion and they love their pleasures. People love and worship anything, and yet they're indifferent to the one thing that really matters. We're surrounded by idolatry and we're surrounded by unbelief. And you know, some of you feel it more intensely than others. Some of you are the only follower of Jesus in your home or in your family. Some of you work in an environment that's hostile to the claims and the commands of Jesus. Some of you have friends and family members who will get furious at you if you mention Jesus and you use his name besides anything other than a curse word. These can be lonely places to be. So how do you not lose heart? With all this unbelief that is just persistent and pervasive, it can become really easy to be discouraged And just sort of make compromises and blend in to go along in order to get along. How do you not lose heart? When you look at the people who don't believe in Jesus or maybe you're just indifferent to Jesus and on the surface, their lives are just fine. How do you make sense of that? How do you not doubt in light of that? Well, if you're wondering that, the first readers of John's gospel were probably wondering the same thing. Tempted to feel the same discouragement, the same doubt. It's the same discouragement and doubt the Christians in Rome would have felt also. Paul writes about it in Romans 9 through 11. That the very people the scriptures were written to, the very people the Messiah was born among and lived among, all of these overwhelmingly rejected Jesus. How do you make sense of that and not lose heart? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John wants to persuade you, don't let widespread unbelief of Jesus 
make you conclude he's not really the son of God. Don't let widespread unbelief in Jesus make you conclude he's not really the son of God. He's going to build this case with four reasons. Because unbelief is unreasonable. Unbelief was predicted. Unbelief is judgment. And unbelief really is idolatry. This is going to be the structure for our time. Friend, I pray that after our time in John 12, 36 to 43, God would put confidence in your spine. That you'd be able to withstand the blows of unbelief in the world around you and even unbelief in yourself. But more than that, I pray that as a result of our time, God would also put compassion in your veins. That you wouldn't leave this time feeling superior to the people around you who don't believe in Jesus, but that you would leave this time pleading for the people around you who don't believe in Jesus. That God would open their eyes, soften their hearts, enlighten their minds, grant them repentance. So, Don't let widespread unbelief in Jesus make you conclude he's not really the son of God. Why? First, because unbelief is unreasonable. The British Library in London has over 180 million cataloged items. The Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. has about 175 million cataloged items. The Shanghai Library in China has 56 million cataloged items. These are big places. Now, these statistics, I hope, can make you appreciate more a verse like John 21, verse 25, which says, Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? Well, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Maybe John's speaking poetically, but the point remains. The quantity of Jesus's works is non-ignorable. I don't know if you're familiar with this part of town, but it's like traveling south on Rocky River Drive, 237, past the airport toward Berea, and on your right-hand sign, you will see a massive electric sign for the IX Center. It's so big that they have like tried to remove it because it's, it's just that non-ignorable. You can't not see it. That's like Jesus' works. John 12, 36, Jesus closes his public appearances to his fellow Jewish countrymen. And then John uh, 12, 37, John notes their unbelief. They remain in their unbelief, even though Jesus had done so many signs before them. You see how John marks out the quantity of Jesus's signs. So many. No one could say that Jesus was like vanilla ice and he only ever had one good song. (laughs) Jesus was not a one-hit wonder And there were plenty who recognized this. Even back in John 7, 31, some people ask, hey, when the Christ appears, is he going to do more signs than this guy has done? But John doesn't just tell us about the quantity of signs. He tells us about the quality of Jesus's signs. Again, look at John 12, 37. Jesus does these signs before them. He's not like that kid in the pool with his dad kind of distracted and he does something really cool and jumps in the pool and say, oh, dad, you missed it. No, Jesus doesn't do his signs with no one looking. He does them with everyone looking, even with his opponents looking. Remember what the chief priests and Pharisees say back in chapter 11, verse 47. They say, what are we to do? 
For this man performs many signs. He doesn't do them in private. You know, this is the same way that the the Apostle Paul tries to persuade the governor Festus of Jesus' greatest sign of all, his death and resurrection. Acts 26, Paul says, Festus, I know these things haven't escaped your notice. These things weren't done in a corner. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, 500 different people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. It's Paul's way of saying, guys, if you don't believe me, go talk to the people who saw it. (laughs) They're still around. Right, if you don't believe in Jesus, it's not because there's not enough evidence. If the people who saw Jesus could even concede the quantity and the quality of what he did, this should show you something. It's not that there's something off about Jesus. It's that there's something off about us. If you gave these people truth serum, they would give you George Costanza's breakup line. They would tell Jesus, Jesus, it's not you. It's me. (laughs) Friend, if you've started to see that your objections for believing in Jesus are actually just excuses, well, then you might be experiencing what it takes to go from unbelief to belief. And that's a realization that what I need from God isn't a brand new sign written in the sky. What I need from God is a brand new heart. It's how it's always worked. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy. The people in the wilderness was the same generation who witnessed the 10 plagues in Egypt. They witnessed the splitting of the Red Sea. They witnessed the pillar of smoke by day, the pillar of fire by night. They ate manna that came from heaven. They saw water come out of a rock. So many more things. And at the end of their journey, God tells them essentially what we're saying here. You guys don't need a new sign from me. You guys need a new heart from me. Unbelief is unreasonable. And it's God's grace to show us that. Friend, if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure you're a Christian, I don't want to dismiss the hard things going on in your life that make believing in Jesus feel harder to do. I want to ensure you that Jesus can handle those hard things. Friend, I just don't want you to dismiss the reasons he's given you to trust him. I think consider right now, the circumstances right now, you're in a room of people who used to not trust Jesus and now who do trust Jesus. And it's not because they checked their brains at the door either. I wonder, could there be something to that? Right now, you're in a room with maybe a Bible on your lap. The main way God's made himself known. Could there be something to that? Could it be that it's not that God needs to do more for for you, but rather you need to take more seriously what God has already done for you? So how do you make sense of all the unbelief around you? That's a pressing question. It's a pressing question for Jesus' followers in the first century. And it's a pressing question for Jesus' followers in the 21st century. Well, first we can make sense of it because unbelief is unreasonable. It doesn't prove that something's off about Jesus. It proves that something's off about us. But even with that, you know, this probably isn't the way you and I would write the story. Just some three paragraphs earlier in John 12, we read the equivalent of a ticker tape parade being thrown for Jesus. He receives a hero's welcome in a city that's swelling with people. And now this would have been a good a time as ever for Jesus to ride off in the sunset. 
uh, for the credits to roll and for John to put up on the screen and they all lived happily ever after. But John doesn't do that. And it's so surprising that he doesn't do that either. Because John's whole point of his book is to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God and for you to believe in him and have life in his name. That's his point. And yet, he includes a detail like John 12, 37. Many people don't believe in him. Well, at the very least, you have to say that John doesn't present the Instagram version of Jesus's life where all the blemishes are edited out, where everything's always awesome and people are always on vacation and young and smiling. Well, I think John, including a detail like chapter 12, verse 37, actually can reassure you he's writing an honest, truthful account of Jesus's life. And you can trust what John's writing. You know, that many people didn't believe in Jesus, that's unfortunate. That many people didn't believe in Jesus, it actually appears embarrassing for someone who claims to be Messiah, the Messiah. But even for all that, John says that many people believe, not believing in Jesus It's not surprising. Unbelief wasn't some unexpected hiccup that Jesus had to adjust to on the fly. John reminds us that unbelief was predicted all along. That's what he writes in verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. You might remember that Isaiah 53 is maybe the central chapter regarding the work of the Messiah, God's special king. Now, you have to look at the surrounding context of Isaiah 53.1 in order to make sense of these two lines that John quotes. So if you want, you can keep your finger in John 12 and flip back to Isaiah 53. You can make sense of the first line, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? by looking back to Isaiah 52, verse seven. There you can see the message that people would have heard. Isaiah 52, seven says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah goes on to say that that good news centers around a single individual an individual who's called God's servant. So in Isaiah 52, verse 13, God exalts this servant. In Isaiah 52, verse 14, people reject this servant. So this second line that John quotes from Isaiah 53, 1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That phrase, arm of the Lord, is a way to refer to an act of God's power, particularly a powerful act of deliverance. We see this phrase used often in connection with the Exodus. So for example, Psalm 136 says that with a strong arm, God brought out Israel from Egypt. So keep in mind the context of Isaiah 53. Right before it, in Isaiah 52, verse 15, through the rejected Messiah, God does the powerful act of sprinkling many nations, that is, making them clean. Just put it all together. What is Isaiah saying in Isaiah 53, verse 1? He's saying no one's believing this message of good news about God's servant. He's saying many have rejected God's power to deliver through the act of his servant. That's written hundreds of years before Jesus. And do you see how it clearly predicts what's going on here in John? Many don't believe in Jesus, the Messiah. And many don't understand what Jesus has come to do to deliver them, to make them clean. 
Unbelief is predicted. But it's not just that. There's even a deeper wrinkle to it than that. Unbelief isn't just predicted. God uses unbelief to accomplish his greater purpose. You see, what the people intended for evil, God intended for good. God used the evil of rejecting the Messiah to accomplish the good of saving sinners. The Apostle Peter puts it together for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. He writes there, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, there's God's sovereignty, God's control, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's man's responsibility put together. For the greater purpose, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Unbelief was predicted. It didn't catch God by surprise. In fact, God permitted it to be part of his plan in order to accomplish a greater purpose. It reminds me of something that Johnny Erickson Tata says. She says that sometimes God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. If you know that woman's story, you know that's true. Well, the story of unbelief in Jesus actually wouldn't end with John chapter 12. It would continue even after Jesus died and rose again. So the book of Acts, it begins with a bang. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells uh, Christ's people. The church in Jerusalem has really overnight success. Thousands of people now believe in Jesus. Everything's looking up. But big numbers draw even bigger pressure. So the officials want to squash this new movement that they call the way. And a boiling point comes at the end of Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Now all the Christians in Jerusalem were under the heat of persecution. But even here, even here, God uses evil unbelief for greater purposes. You see, the officials intended the persecution to squash Christianity. But God used the persecution to spread Christianity. Acts 8 verse 4 says, Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Guys, let's make this concrete for us. You know, I talked about at the beginning how I just feel like the Apostle Paul walking around in Athens, a place filled with idols where people worship anything and everything. They ignore the one thing that really matters. I want to play out a hypothetical for you. What if the unbelief, what if rejection of Jesus actually gets worse? I don't want to be the doomsday guy, and I also want us to be honest. Do we really expect people in our day to respond to Jesus better than they responded to him when he was here in the first place? I'm saying this is going to happen tomorrow or next year or five years from now. I don't know what tomorrow may bring, though. Let's play out a hypothetical. What if we lose religious liberty in the United States? What if we do? It's not not meant to be a scare tactic. It's just meant to be a thought experiment. What if we do? Well, if we do, don't think for a second that that's not outside of God's plan, that that's not outside of God's power. Yeah, you know what? There may become a day where we are bound, but there will never come a day when the word of God is bound. If God's own son being rejected didn't catch God by surprise, guess what? If we lose religious liberty, it's not going to catch God by surprise either. If an evil like rejecting Jesus can accomplish the good of saving sinners, well, then the evil of rejecting Christians can accomplish the good 
of spreading Christianity. God's proved that in Acts. God's proving that around the world in places like China or Iran or Nigeria. Maybe in one day, America. Don't let widespread unbelief in Jesus make you think he's not really the son of God. Why? Well, first we said because unbelief is unreasonable. Second, because unbelief was predicted. And third, because unbelief is judgment. Look again at verses 39 to 41. It says, therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Okay, if you're dealing honestly with these verses, then you know we have some heavy lifting to do, right? So we kick things off in verse 39 with people's inability to believe. They could not believe. That's a jarring statement, isn't it? Now, to start to explain this inability, John quotes from another verse from Isaiah. This time it's from Isaiah chapter 6. And this is another well-known chapter in this very long book. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord on his throne. He sees all the angels around God veiling their faces from God's spectacular beauty and holiness. And when Isaiah himself sees how pure God is, he realizes how filthy he is. He recognizes that a sinner like him can't stand before a holy king like God. So so God, in his grace, moves toward Isaiah to forgive him and to cleanse him. And then Isaiah offers himself to be God's messenger. And God gives Isaiah almost an unexpected mission and message. God tells Isaiah, I'm going to send you to people who are going to ignore you. I'm going to send you to people who are going to reject you. The message that you're going to preach, Isaiah, will harden and blind the people you're preaching to. Kind of surprising. If you think about it, you say, well, that doesn't sound very fair of God. It doesn't sound very good on God's part. Well, this is where context is king. God's not sending Isaiah to a people who he hasn't warned. God's not sending Isaiah to a people who can see and hear God's messages just fine. No, God's sending Isaiah to a people who have repeatedly refused to listen to him. When you read Isaiah, you'll see how many times God has given his people a message and they've just ignored it. How many times God has delivered them from threats of foreign invasion and they just ignore it. How many times God has judged the nations around them for the same sins that they're doing and they just ignore it. It's not that the people in Isaiah's day could see and then God made them blind. No, no, no. They were already blind and God kept them in that way as judgment. When God blinds or hardens someone, he doesn't have to create brand new, fresh evil. No, no, no. He gives people over to what they've already chosen. And so John says what's true in Isaiah's day is true in Jesus's day. Verse 41, John says Isaiah is writing ultimately about Jesus, both in chapter 53 and amazingly in chapter 6. That Jesus is the suffering king and he's he's the suffering servant and he's the king through whom God makes himself known. So people in John 12 are no different from people in Isaiah. None of them have started off neutral. In fact, No person does. Psalm 14 says that there are none righteous. It says that no one truly seeks after God. 
So if that's true, then on our own, no person can believe in Christ because no person really wants to believe in Christ. So when God hardens or blinds someone, he's really telling them what Burger King tells them. Okay, fine. Have it your way. He removes the restraints. It's exactly what Romans 1 says. God sees people choose themselves over him, and so he gives them the desires of their heart. So friends, how do you make sense of the unbelief around you? The craziness around you? Could it be that God is removing the restraints? Removing the restraints of those who have repeatedly rejected him. Well, you might hear all this and a couple of objections could pop into your mind. One objection, you say, Steve, okay, you're telling me everyone starts off not wanting God. He lets some go and he turns others to him. That's not fair. Well, you think it's not fair that God doesn't turn everyone to him. The Bible says it's not fair that God would turn anyone to him. Fair, what would be fair is if God treated us like the angels. 2 Peter 2, 4. God did not spare the angels when they sinned. There's no rescue mission for the angels. There's no plan to pursue the angels. God let them go. That would be fair. That God pursues anyone isn't fair. That God pursues anyone is merciful. And if you think that God isn't merciful enough, my friend, I would tread lightly and read Romans 9, especially verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You might hear all this about unbelief being judgment. Maybe another objection pops into your mind. You might say to me, well, Steve, if God wants me to believe, that's up to him, not up to me. My friend, that's not how the Bible tells you to think about it. The Bible says that, the Bible that says that God lets people go over to their own desires is the same Bible that says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Friend, that you're here today and that you're listening today could be a sign that God hasn't removed the restraints. It could be a sign that he's softening your heart, not hardening it, that he's opening your eyes, not letting them stay shut. So your job isn't to wait on God to turn your heart to him. Your job is to believe. And if you do, you will realize it's only because God turned your heart to him. John has explained unbelief around Jesus, mainly from God's perspective. We saw how God predicted it. We saw how uh, unbelief can even be God's judgment. But to close out this section, John explains unbelief again from the human perspective. So this time, let's look at verses 42 and 43. John points out that unbelief is closely related to idolatry. John writes, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I don't know about you, I find find this kind of a surprising twist at the end of the section because in all of the Gospel of John, all these authorities talk a really big game about not liking Jesus. Yet some of them secretly believe in him. Well, for as surprising of a twist that it might be, 
Remember, John's dropped little hints along the way that even the Pharisees, even the authorities can't deny all that Jesus was doing. So maybe this isn't surprising at all. For these authorities, they end up rejecting Jesus, not because Jesus's claims are unreasonable. They end up rejecting Jesus, not because his miracles are unbelievable. They reject Jesus because they just prefer something else. You say, reject Jesus, reject Jesus. That sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? The text doesn't say that. It says these guys believe in Jesus. Well, like we said last week, not all belief in Jesus is real belief in Jesus. Even the demons believe and shudder. So this tells you, John 12, 42 and 43, that real belief in Jesus isn't private. What Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Guys, the Bible has no category for secret Christians who just want to believe on their own and do their own thing. No category for that. When you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, the first command that your Lord gives you is to be baptized, to go public with your faith. And then the next command your Lord gives you is to follow him among a local group of believers who also follow him so that you might be helped and held accountable. No category for secret Christians. It, it makes me think of uh, the book of Revelation, how it starts off. You remember it starts off with seven different letters, right? Seven different letters to Christians. And what do all these Christians have in common at the beginning of Revelation? They're all connected and identified with a church. <laughs> There's no eighth letter in the book of Revelation that says, to all those Christians out there who aren't really into organized Christianity and are just doing their own thing, not even a category for the Bible. Real belief in Jesus isn't private. So these authorities in John 12 reject Jesus, not because they can't believe his claims, but because they actually prefer something else. John puts on his x-ray glasses to show us these, their true motives. On the outside, they're afraid of the Pharisees. They don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. That would be the equivalent of getting kicked out of their entire community. That would be the equivalent of getting kicked out of your family, maybe even getting kicked out of heaven. <laughs> but what you fear is always driven by what you love. On the inside, these guys love the glory that comes from man. They're so afraid of the Pharisees kicking them out of the synagogue because they love being recognized. They love being seen as people who are important. They love being accepted. They love being approved of. They love being safe. These are the idols that they hold on to that keep them from taking hold of Jesus. So how do you explain the unbelief around you? Well, maybe there are people around you who might surprise you, who are more friendly to Jesus than they let on but they won't hop off the fence and commit to Jesus because they're afraid of what they'll lose. Maybe they'll lose being included in a group. Maybe they'll lose being included in their heritage. Maybe they'll lose being included in their family. It's natural to love these things. 
And you know, for a good number of you, this is largely your story. And a story that goes something like this. And I wouldn't say it unless it was true that you were born and raised in the Catholic Church. This is part of your heritage. Being Catholic is part of what it means to be part of your family. Leaving the Catholic Church would be like leaving my family. But I encountered the biblical gospel. The good news that God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the word of God alone. And I realized something that holding on to my heritage and holding on to my family would keep me from taking hold truly of Jesus. That I could have all the approval and all the acceptance in the world, but without the good news of Jesus Christ crying out on the cross, it is finished. I would have nothing. I realized that I might, have not, might not have any acceptance. I might not have any approval in the world, but with Jesus, I have everything. That's every Christian story. Christians coming out of a Catholic background, of a Muslim background, of a gay and lesbian background, every Christian story. For every Christian, the call is to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus, because you've come to realize that Jesus is better than what you're holding on to. So do you ever feel like the Apostle Paul walking around the city of Athens? You see unbelief everywhere. People believe in everything, but they won't believe in the one thing that matters. Well, I hope now you can explain that unbelief a little bit better in your head. That it's unreasonable, that it was predicted, that it can be judgment from God on those who have rejected him, that it's fueled by idolatry, what we prefer instead of God. I hope these reasons give you confidence. Confidence that there's nothing off with Jesus, but there is something off with us. I want you to think also, after hearing all this, about the next step you should take. What's your next step today? Now that you can explain unbelief a little bit better in your head, your next step might be not to let unbelief make you cold and indifferent in your heart. That might be your next step. Think about the Apostle Paul walking around in Athens. You know, it could have been really easy for him to walk into that city with a strut. Chin held high, looking down his nose, condescending, smug attitude. Look at all these godless pagans here. Paul pursues those people. Jesus, the same people who reject him in John 12, he weeps over. For you, if Jesus waited to live and die in your place until you stopped rejecting him, he would have never come. Jesus sought you while you were still a sinner. As the song puts it, sought you when you were a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. Jesus didn't seek you once you returned on your own. He sought you first. My friend, if Jesus has rescued you and you trust in him, don't let the unbelief around you shake your confidence in him, but neither let that unbelief around you spoil your compassion. Reflect the same compassion that was given to you. What's your next step? What's your next step for today? Maybe you, uh, it's confidence in Jesus. It's compassion for people. Your next step might be to hope in God because you look at the unbelief around you. You look at the unbelief in your family. People have just persistently rejected Jesus and you begin to feel hopeless and you begin to despair. Your next step is to hope in God. I wanna show you a place. Acts chapter six, verse seven. You can keep your finger in John 12 and turn there if you want. In this chapter, we see that the number of Christians in Jerusalem is actually swelling, it's growing. And the church is experiencing some growing pains. 
They work through it. And then God sees fit to add even more Christians to the church in the city of Jerusalem. But then there's this little fascinating detail in Acts 6, verse 7, the very end of the verse. It says, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I wonder if some of those priests are the same guys from John 12. (laughs) Guys who wouldn't take hold of Jesus because they wouldn't let go of acceptance and approval. They finally got off the fence. Friends, if on our own we are blind and hardened to God, our only hope is if God gives us sight and softens our hearts and praise God for his grace because he's still in that business. Don't give up hope. And when you see God open eyes, when you see God soften hearts, when you see people leave behind their community or their heritage or their family to follow Jesus, what's your next step? Brother, sister, your next step is to welcome them into this community. Welcome them into this heritage. Welcome them into this family. What's your next step for today? Last, your next step might be to get off the fence. You might be friendly with Jesus, but you haven't gone public with your faith in him. You might be trying to live in two different worlds. It's time to go into one. Maybe something's holding you back. And whatever that is, whatever, uh, whatever that you're holding on to that keeps you from really taking hold of Jesus, whatever that is, that thing won't bring you glory from God. It might bring you glory from man, but not glory from God. Whatever that is, you won't be able to hold on to it forever. And despite all the unbelief you see, only Jesus has lived the perfect life you haven't lived. Only Jesus has died the death you deserve. And only Jesus rose again, proving he really is the son of God. Off the fence. He is the savior of all those who truly believe. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for the the great, stunning, humbling, glorious truth that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Lord, would, would people here feel, experience, maybe for the first time, the assurance, full pardon of having Jesus? Oh God, we think of people here, we think of people in our lives, and we ask God who is abundantly merciful that you would give mercy to open eyes and to soften hearts. And God, we ask for your grace and forgiveness for when we have willingly hardened our hearts to you and closed our eyes to you. Lord, we love you, and we are reminded, we are so thankful that you loved us first. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.